We're going to minister tonight from Matthew 6. Um, I've been telling you about the Lord's Prayer for weeks. I did an intro to the Lord's Prayer a couple of weeks ago. Last week I got sidetracked, blame it on the Holy Spirit. Um, I just felt compelled to move back into the Beatitudes. I can't say that didn't cross my mind again this week because they are still uh, heavy on my heart. So we're going to get back into them soon. But I do want to get into the Lord's Prayer tonight and and I know for sure next week, um, maybe even another one. And it's, it seems like, I know it feels like, well, you can surely do faster through the Lord's Prayer. It's not that long of a prayer, just a few lines. But um, there's a lot happening in the Lord's Prayer that just gets ran over as we pray it. If we were to stop and think about the context of the time that Jesus said this, it's not our time. It's not Christianity, 2,000 years after the resurrection. It's first century Judaism, prior to the cross and the resurrection. And yet Jesus is laying some things out that are path-breaking, to say the very least. So I just don't feel like we can do it justice to rush through it, because for nearly 2,000 years, the church has prayed this prayer. They've prayed this prayer in heartache and sorrow. They've prayed this prayer in distress. They've prayed this prayer at... In congratulations, it's the, it's the ultimate prayer. And that ought to say something to the fact that Jesus told his disciples to pray it. That people pray it when they're down, they pray it when they're up. Um, and maybe it's also because we don't have a ton of these. We don't have Jesus saying, now when you're sad, pray this. When you're happy, pray this. Instead, it's when you pray, say this. And so it is a catch-all. Well, we run the risk on those moments of catch-all of just rushing right through it because we think we know it. I'm guilty of this. I think I know it. I just fly through it. Don't think about it. These teaching sessions force us to slow down. Me as a teacher forces me to go, okay, what would you do if you just had that line? You don't have to talk to the room about that line. You can't just fly through that so you can get to the next one. Jesus had moments where he's alone with his disciples and you know they quiz him on these things. You know they ask for more information. They, you know they want these things fleshed out and sometimes we even get to see him do that. And this is one that we don't, but if we're careful and we pay attention to what's happened in both the Sermon on the Mount and the greater Bible at large, then we can get down to the bottom of what I think is one of the most fascinating things that Jesus ever shares with us and that is the Lord's Prayer. This has been one of those things that... Um, our Catholic friends call the Our Father. Uh, we hold on to it as the Lord's Prayer. In some Christian circles, they never pray it at all. In other Christian circles, they pray it multiple times a day. And, uh, but in all of our traditions, we've heard it. We've recited it. We've said it. But do we understand it? So maybe we can get a greater appreciation. That's really my hope. Not that we're reinventing the wheel here. It's the Lord's Prayer. I can't add to it and make it, you know, make it better. But if you can understand some things you didn't understand before, maybe it makes it better. But I'll repeat something I told you a couple weeks ago. Why do we have stuff like the Lord's Prayer? I think it's because sometimes you don't know what to pray. So when you don't know what to pray, say your prayers. Well, what are your prayers? Well, you know, the church has had the Apostles' Creed. The church has the Lord's Prayer. The church has the 23rd Psalm. If you really want to get down to it, you've got Mary's Magnificat. We've preached that back at Christmas. You can go preach the song of, uh, pray the song of Moses and the Lamb from Revelation. You can pray the Psalms, one after the other. It'd take you almost half the calendar year if you just prayed one per day. Um, 
In any case, when you don't know what to pray, say your prayers. The Lord's Prayer might be the number one. It might be the highlight of all of that. So it helps us when we don't know what to do to turn to things like this. It's not the end-all prayer. It's not as if Jesus doesn't teach more on prayer. Like, for instance, the Lord's Prayer doesn't end in the name of Jesus. And yet we know as Christians that the name of Jesus is our authority. Jesus told us that we have the right to pray in His name. When He prays the Lord's Prayer, He doesn't pray in His name. So we don't get to the end of the Lord's Prayer and go, that's how you pray, nothing else. Obviously not, because the Gospels don't agree with that. But this is a big deal. All of the synoptic Gospels include the Lord's Prayer, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John does not, but pretty heavy argument that John 1.14, uh, in which the Word is made flesh and dwells among us, um, that's the Lord's Prayer lived out in front of us, uh, whether it, John records it or not. So it's an essential part of the canon, an essential part of the life of the church. I want to read the whole thing, then I want to go back to the top. Because I'll just tell you, we're going to read the whole thing, but we're really going to work on one verse tonight. Right? And that's verse, the first verse of that prayer. But here's that prayer from Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. I use the NRSV tonight for a very specific reason. Um, and that is that the NRSV leaves off the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It leaves it off because it's not in the earliest translations as part of the original Lord's Prayer. It doesn't surface until much later in the canon of Greek scholarship in which it starts to be dropped in as scribes start to rewrite the Lord's Prayer. And they drop in, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And it, maybe it's because they didn't like the fact that Jesus ended the prayer without an amen. And they, so they add one of their own. But I, I leave it off. And I also leave it off for the very general reason that I, that I think um, if we get back to the earliest source of Greek, I think there's a really good reason why Jesus saves evil for the end. Um, and I'll get into that as we work through the Lord's Prayer over the next few weeks. We're going to leave that alone for tonight, but you'll notice that it starts with Father and it ends with evil one. Um, I kind of feel like, uh, and this is all I'll say about it now, but I kind of feel like there's a reason for that. It's because he wants you to start with the Father, and if you start with the Father, the evil one will be the last thing you worry about. If you start with the evil one, the last thing you'll find is a father. Okay, so you can either go into the Lord's Prayer the way Jesus directed you, or you can go in through the back door. How many of you got saved to get away from the evil one and miss hell? Then how many of it took you a long time to find he's a father? It's because you came in through the back door of the Lord's Prayer. And so we'll get to that as we work through this and work through why I think that's important. But the doxology we leave off for that, one, that very purpose so we can work in the way I think that Jesus worked it. I also want to notice one more thing before I go back and pick up verse 9, and that is that some of the most controversial moments in the prayer, uh, two things I want to say there. One is that in some circles of grace, we have taken stuff like the Lord's Prayer, and we've picked it apart theologically, and we've tried to place it only in the New Covenant, and we've said, well, Jesus is talking to people in the Old Covenant, so some of this prayer doesn't apply to you. We take things like forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and we say we don't have to pray that because God's forgiven us anyway. I'll get into that as we go in the next few weeks, but I'm going to have people up front in this 
that that either turns them on or turns them off based on how I handle that. So I'll just say this. Let's just relax on beating up a prayer Jesus told us to pray. Okay? Let's don't ever assume that the right stance to take is to reject something Jesus said because we don't really think it falls in our timeline. There are very, very specific moments in the life of Jesus that you can ignore. There are. When a man comes to Jesus and he's a leper, and Jesus says to him, you are healed. Go show yourself to Moses for the rites of cleansing. Guess what? You don't go show yourself to Moses for the rites of cleansing in the event that you get healed of anything, namely leprosy. But anything at all, you're not required to go to a Jewish temple and show yourself to temple priesthood. So does Jesus ever say anything contextually? Absolutely. Common sense would tell you he says things contextually. But let's don't take the beauty of the things he teaches us spiritually and so contextualize them that we get rid of their authority. So that's all I'll say in regards to say like forgiveness. At this point, we'll work through it as we get into that part of the prayer. So just trust us for a little bit and just kind of roll with that and see what we find. The other part is that you'll notice the phrase, uh, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. How many of you grew up praying it this way? Forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us, right? At least four different versions of the Lord's Prayer have sort of filtered into our consciousness. We've been fighting over that word in this prayer for a long, long time. I land on the NRSV because I actually think it's the closest to the meaning in the Greek. And it's also a different word than surfaces right after this prayer. When Jesus says, if you forgive your brethren their trespasses, your father forgives you. It's not the same word he uses in the middle of the Lord's prayer. We'll save that for later in the prayer as well. But just know that um, we haven't landed on a universal way to say it, which might tell us that it doesn't have as much to do with infractions against heaven as it does debts, trespasses, and transgressions against our neighbor. Um, Because in your prayers, God is concerned with how you treat each other. Prayer closet is not private time where Jesus blesses me. Prayer closet is the time when Jesus shapes me. Let me say that again. Prayer time is not bless me club. I'm going to get along with God until until the glory comes out. No. Prayer time is... The moment I get alone with him and he molds me into his image. And in that molding, sometimes he has to burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. And sometimes in that molding, he has to speak rebuke to me. And sometimes in that molding, he has to hold my hand. And sometimes he has to put his arm around me. It's not lay out in the prayer closet until the Holy Ghost falls. That's not prayer time. Can God, I don't tell God what he can and can't do, but we, we're approaching this stuff sometimes like it's a magic talisman. If we could just say the right words and pull the lever just right, cherries would come up, boom, Holy Ghost would fall, the anointing would happen. And in reality, if you'll notice that when Jesus teaches prayer, it's a bunch of this. It's a bunch of interpersonal. Why is that? Because prayer changes the way you treat your neighbor. It changes the way you see the world. It doesn't just give you a sermon or give you the anointing. If you're using prayer in that way, you're using prayer instead of being used in the prayer. And that's what prayer is. It's us lining up with him 
And so, back to the top, pray then in this way. I want to focus you tonight essentially on three things, although we really will hit hallowed be thy name at the end, and we're going to sort of land the plane on hallowed be thy name, but I really want to focus in tonight on our Father heaven, our Father in heaven, or our Father who art in heaven, and why these three things, because I really, not just in the teaching, preaching world, three is a nice little round number to get to help you to remember things, but also because there's so much happening in these three words that if we could slow down and digest them just a little bit, it'll help us when we pray the Lord's Prayer. So let's start at the beginning, even though I was tempted in my odd way to start at the end. I, I actually sometimes think if you start and work your way backwards, um, maybe it helps, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, let's start with our, because I want you to notice that collective pronoun. And I'm just going to put some thoughts up, okay? We're just going to stay here a while. Do with this what you will. If you like writing them down and you like taking those thoughts and running with them, fine. Um, I was really tempted in this lesson to use the screen only for scriptures um, and just talk some things out with you as I wrestled it out with the Holy Spirit today. Um, and so my, my thought and my prayer from, from this point forward is there's a lot of things that I'm sort of working with internally that we're going to see where he brings them out. We're going to see what happens with them. But we'll kind of use this as a frame as we go along and just work off of it. That's kind of the mainstream. Everything else will be little tributaries. But I'm struck by the fact that Jesus doesn't open with my father. He opens with our father. He specifically opens with a collective per pronoun instead of a personal pronoun. Um, showing me that, the, that while prayer is individualistic, prayer is not only individualistic. Prayer is the heart cry of a people. It's the cry of the group, not just of the individual within the group. He is your father, but he's not only your father. And if he's not only your father, that means he's someone else's father. And if he's someone else's father, what does that make you to someone else? Brother or sister, family member. So the Our Father connects us personally. Out of the gate, this prayer can't just be about you. Otherwise, it would be my Father. So it's Our Father. So never forget that other people are an essential part of the journey and that they're an essential part of understanding the Father. Because it's Our, it means Matt is my brother. It means Barb is my sister. And it means that we are linked beneath the Father. He's as much their father as he is my father. And if that's true, then I need to recognize it because then I become somewhat responsible for them. Now, I don't mean responsible in every area of life, but as family members, I have a responsibility to my wife that I do not have to anybody else in this room. All right? A responsibility. My ability to respond needs to be first to her, second at best to anyone else, because that's my covenant partner. That's familial, all right? That's simple. We all understand that. If you don't have that in your spouse, consider that in your kids. Consider that with your parents, your natural brother, your natural sister, fam that whole family first idea. Why is that? Because it closely connects us. And so you take care of family. If we buy the collective hour, then we by default are acknowledging that other people are as important as us and that we belong to a family that's bigger than us. And if we belong to a family, what if we treated the extended family the way we treat our family? Okay. And so where they come, where they are 
so important in our decision-making process, then the family of God becomes important in our decision-making process. And we start to feel a sense of responsibility. And we can always take things to the nth degree. We can always take things too far. Like how far do I go for my family? Well, you got to wrestle that out even in your own natural blood family. I mean, there, there comes a, a line. And so there's a line in, the, in the, the, the spiritual family as well. Here's what I love. Jesus doesn't put the line in the sand. He doesn't say, you can only go this far, but don't go any farther. He leaves that alone so that you have the ability to respond to the Holy Spirit, to know where to go and what to do, and, and not to lose that ability. Um, we, I think whenever we sort of mandate, um, regulate, hospitality within the church. The church is really good at that. We sort of mandate and regulate hospitality and fellowship so that people don't feel an obligation to do that at home. You know, like have the dinner at church so no one has to invite anybody to their house kind of thing, right? That's an example of sort of mandated, regulated hospitality. It's fine and dandy. It's great. I grew up with dinner on the grounds. Anyone else? And when you're a kid, you literally ate your dinner off the ground sometimes. It's just whatever. You just, as long as you could get to go play touch football really quick after the chicken. So whatever it took. Mandated fellowship, sort of regulated fellowship. Great. Wonderful. Has it caused us to be less hospitable? Huh, that's worth wrestling with. You know, I mean, why do I have to have all these people in my life when I can just go be a part of their life for a little while. I'm not saying that we should or shouldn't. I just think it's the kind of things that we have to think about when we start to see our father instead of my father, because somebody else becomes important. And then it's a part of my responsibility, how I respond to you. And I think that when we regulate it and we mandate it, the reason why I'm very hesitant about regulated and mandated, say hospitality or charity, is because I think it can atrophy our ability to do that on our own. This is a very pointed one, but I'll use it anyway because it's the best I've got. The church world is pretty hardcore about mandated giving in most circles. Whether it's the tithe of 10% or tithes and offerings or tithes, offerings in addition to tithes, Use this envelope if you want to give to the church. Use this envelope if you want to give to them. Whatever. We're, we mandate it. We work it really hard. I'm saying we pretty broad here. But let's go ahead and keep that pronoun. We do compulsory giving. We teach that if you don't give... I'm not even going to say we. I refuse. Okay. It is taught that if you don't give, you don't get blessed. I'm not attaching myself to that one. I don't want to, I, no, no way. You're not blessed because you do. You're blessed because of Jesus. That's, I stand on that. That's the hill I want to die on. Um, so I'm not going to throw the we in there. But that happens in the church. It's mandated giving. What, you might say, well, we have to. I get it. I get it. We got, this got to get paid and that person's got to get, you know, we got to do this. We got to expand and we got to throw money at this. Okay, great. Has it taken away our ability to then flow in being givers? Because you give and you stick it in the envelope, you write the check and you put it to the penny and then you go to town and walk right past the guy shaking the cup 
needing a few pennies because I already gave. I gave at the office kind of thing. And I don't know. I, I, I've, ha- I've heard the Holy Spirit speak as I've walked past the shaking cup before. And especially when my response was, I just gave pretty good at church. And, and so our becomes pretty big. And this is something the Holy Spirit's taught me. If I ever find myself playing semantics with the Holy Spirit, I always lose that war. And what I mean by that is, when I play semantics with the Holy Spirit, it sounds kind of like this. Well, He's not their Father. I mean, it's the family of God. I'm not sure this guy's part of the family of God. I mean, who am I obligated to, Lord? Not surely everyone I... And I've just learned that when I start to split hairs over who counts and who doesn't, I always lose that argument with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's always, it, 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 it always falls back on me. I hear myself through the voice of that guy saying to Jesus, but who's my neighbor? I mean, yeah, I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but which one's really mine? And then I don't like it, but here comes this booming story of the Good Samaritan, and I'm not going to like who my neighbor is because it's not going to be who I want it to be. And so I've learned that if I try to identify who belongs in the hour, I got an issue. And you do with that as you will. I don't know how to, I don't know how to help you define hour, but it's not just you. So I don't know how big it is, but it's never as small as just you. Let's start there. I don't know who all gets to be an hour father who is in heaven. But I know it's not my father who is in heaven. His and mine, hers and mine, two of us, father. No, I don't know how big hour is, but it's bigger than just you. So if you can remember that, then you can let the Holy Spirit be the leader and the guide and the director into taking you into this. So what does that say then about ecclesia? Ecclesia is the Greek word that we use for church, by the way. And ecclesia is the Greek word that literally means, now hear the plural to this, the called out ones. Hear that S on the end of it? Ecclesia is not the called out one. Ecclesia is the called out ones. Actually, is is improper in front of Ecclesia. It's not an is, it's an R. A-R-E. What are Ecclesia? The called out ones, plural. There's no such thing as a one-man church. I know that it makes for a really good t-shirt to say, I am the church. It's just incorrect theologically. You are not the church. There's no such thing as I am the called out ones. You can be a called out one, but you can't be the whole ecclesia. And so there is no I am the church. It's we are the church. I can't get around our Father who art in heaven. This is collective. It's bigger than me. And why is it important that it's our? Because you need stuff to be bigger than just you. You need to belong to something bigger than only you. It's important for your mental health. It's important for your social well-being for it to be more than just about you. I work in a fairly individualistic fashion for the most part. Do a podcast, edit my stuff, study, write. Um, Don't have to go to an office and work with 10 people or even two people. And... 
individualistic, set my pace, get my work done or don't. Nobody else is going to do it. Like if you take a week off, you didn't like let somebody else do your work. You just did two weeks worth of work before you took the week off. That kind of thing. Individual. Um, great. Love it. But I really have had to have the Holy Spirit direct me into how to find the we and the hour. Because you can't do this on your own. And one of the things that has happened in this group for me is that this group has become our father who art in heaven to me. At least part of my hour, part of my we find it. I'm saying this to people watching who have abandoned the church. You've abandoned the collective because you can't find a good one. I feel you. I understand. It is still no excuse to not find your we, your hour. It might not be easy. You didn't sign up to follow Jesus because everything was supposed to be easy. And finding that band of brethren is a part of your journey, whatever it looks like. If you're truly unsatisfied with it, you just simply can't land. Start to, feel the, start to pray for the direction of the Holy Spirit on how to fix it in your own circle. Even if it means starting something in which other believers sit together and challenge one another along the journey and can contribute and testify to their journey and share the word. It needs to be done. It must be done. And I'll warn you, if you put it off because you just think you can't find a healthy one, you will feel your spirit begin to shrivel because it's not my father. It is our father. Essential. Take that where you will. So what's it say about the Ecclesia? It says we need it. <laughs> it says we're part of it. Father. Actually, I was going to put a bunch of stuff from the Old Testament about Father. I realized that we could be on that a while. But then as I started to filter through them, I realized it's actually a minor doctrine of the Old Testament. Here, here's what I mean by that. The Old Testament concerns God as a Father multiple times. But it doesn't... In, it doesn't intently look at the relationship between fathers and sons or fathers and daughters. It just declares occasionally that God is a father and it's rarely individualistic. It's almost always to Israel. And so there's no real talk about people being sons of God. Uh, that's a phrase that gets saved for the singular, Jesus, up until the New Testament. And so father is essentially a, a, a minor doctrine in the Old Testament. And when you do get it, you get it primarily in terms of provision and primarily in terms of discipline. This is why I think we struggle a little bit with the discipline passages of the New Testament as Christians. And, I, and let's be honest, we struggle. Because when we hear stuff like Hebrews 12 where he disciplines his sons, we think, oh gosh, this is New Covenant. What's discipline look like under the New Covenant? And we're missing the point. Because what Israel would have understood is that what a father does is he keeps his kids in line. That was their mentality. The reason that the father is essential is because he disciplines the children and tells them how to live, what he expects if they're going to live under his roof. So they had no problem calling God a father, but they saw it in disciplinary terms. So then we get to the book of Hebrews and he says, God is a, a father who disciplines his children. Hebrew Christians were going, of course he is. That's what God does. He tells you how to live. It's, it's only in a culture in which discipline has begun to be perceived as possible abuse that we've 
transferred feeling comfortable with a father of discipline because when we talk about discipline in our culture, we almost always talk about it in terms of should we or should we not spank? Should we or should we not use a belt? Is paddling okay? How about, does corporal punishment work? Does it not? This has been in the last couple of generations become like a real issue where previous generations didn't think about it. When you said a father's a disciplinarian, you didn't think in terms of beating kids half to death, although there's always been that dad, right? Because you're, you're going to have that. So because we can highlight that dad in a 15-second YouTube clip now, then all discipline needs to go out. And that's sort of how we handle a lot of things in our culture is that we, we take the worst example, highlight it as the only example, and then kick everything else out because nothing else is a relevant part of the conversation. That's not how they think in, the, in terms of the Scripture, and I don't really think it's how we ought to think as, as children of the Spirit. And so when you think of a God of discipline, you don't have to think, oh my goodness, God is beating people to death and giving them cancer and killing their kids and stealing their job from them. Don't take the worst example that hell has to offer of a father and translate that over onto God. Now I know that happens because we're human and we have our own dad. And if your dad treated you like a piece of trash, then odds are you're going to struggle with seeing God as a good father. That's just the way it is. And so you're going to have to be healed because you have a bruised heart. Well, thank God the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus to bind up the brokenhearted. Part of what we do, we're not talking you into healing. We're introducing you through revelation to the healer who can heal that pain and that problem and clean that up. And we got to let him do that. So we don't take discipline and throw it out like baby out of the bathwaters. So when they thought about a father, they thought about it in those terms. But then the New Testament actually polishes the phrase father. What I call brings it to prominence. Jesus calls God father or my father. In the Gospel of John alone, 107 times. That's overwhelming. 107 times in that Gospel. Father or my father. That's an explosion, by the way. If you compare how many times it happened in the Old Testament, relatively few. And then here comes Jesus going, father, our father, your father, my father the Father, because He's changing the vernacular. He's getting them to think in terms that He is a Father. He belongs to me and I belong to Him. So let me, let me give you a few thoughts in regards to Father as it relates to the New Testament. So we're going to work this from a New Testament prominent point of view. Relate to God as your Father and do so. I want to use the first line of the Lord's Prayer from Luke 11. Same prayer I just changed Books. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You notice Luke changes up the sentence syntax a little bit. This is Jesus sort of describing the prayer uh, rather than just reciting the prayer in Matthew. So the first thing you need to do, this is the first thing the New Testament tries to get you to do is relate to God as a father. Not just a taskmaster, not just a husband, not just big, big God in the sky, not even just covenant God, not even just creator God but God as my Father. Secondly, realize... Now, you might think these are the same. Relate to God as a Father and realize you are His child, but they're not, and I'll tell you why. Because relating to God as Father is realizing that God doesn't hold just a singular title. He holds multiple titles. He is multiple things at the same time. 
But when you realize you are his child, you do have the right to personalize it. I know it's our father. That doesn't get rid of he is my father. It puts me in the midst of the hour. But it doesn't, I don't lose me. I'm still his child. I'm still one of his sons. So you need to realize that you belong to him as a child, as his son, as his daughter. And here's where, how Paul says that. This is a very simple statement, but man, one that we need. Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So how do you, how do you land in the realization that you are a son through Christ? You watch the son. You identify with the son. You become a part of the family of God, so you realize you're his child. Then this is my favorite. <laughs> Live like you believe it. <laughs> you relate to God as your father. All right, relate to God as a father, our father. Realize you actually belong in the family. Don't give that up, by the way. Stop relinquishing the identity that you're a son just because you sin. Let me say that again. Stop relinquishing the identity that you are a son just because you sin. Good grief. Did you stop calling your kids your kids when they disobeyed you? What, what is wrong with us? Why have, we got, why have we made God out to be a worse parent than we are? Like the minute we fail, he's done with us. I'm, I'm not going to say, or, or not just the minute we fail, but we keep failing. And then finally God goes, all right, that's it. You're not my kid anymore. If you would do better than that, don't insult the nature of God by assuming he's not as good a parent as you are. So we fail repeatedly. We don't relinquish being his children. But if we really believed we were his children, maybe we'd live like we believed it. Because if we lived like we would believed it, then they would make a difference in the world. Here's how Paul says that in Ephesians 5, which is typically the marriage chapter, but he has a couple of really good familial statements about children. Ephesians 5.1, Ephesians 5.8, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So you want to imitate God as if you were his kid. Eight, once you were darkness, now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light. Both verses are basically, know what you are, act like it. Don't act like it to become it. Act like it because you are. So live like you're a child of light because you realize you're a child of the light. This is why you cannot spend too much time concentrating on the light, Jesus. Because as you concentrate on the light, you start to identify that you are part of the family. And when you realize you're part of the family, you start to live out being part of the family. It's who you are. Now, I want to take you back into a couple thoughts from the Old Testament. One of these is quite lengthy. I won't spend a ton of time breaking down the words, but I need the context. Plus, they're both going to be in the Psalms. The Psalms, by the way, man, these are prayers. They're songs. Almost half of them are lament. Um, but for the most part, Thanksgiving, praise, some lament, um, petition, almost everything you could ever come up with to pray, there's a psalm to pray it. The psalms start to explore prayer language, not just in song, but in prayer song. They start to explore saying and speaking of God in different terms. And so you start to get these drop-in moments in the psalms of calling God a father. Look at Psalm 68, 4. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. I'm going to read 4, 5, and 6. Lift up a song to him who rides upon the clouds. His name is the Lord. 
be exultant before him. Here's a very rare moment in the Psalms. There's a few. Here's a very rare moment in the Psalms when God becomes a father. Now watch the context of God being a father. He's father of orphans and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God gives the desolate a home to live in. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious live in a parched land. When Israel starts to frame God as a father, they start to frame themselves as orphans and widows because an orphan is someone who needs a father, right? Which is why it was jarring for Jesus to come along and say, our father who art in heaven, because an orphan needs a father. And so if Jesus is saying our father, then that means I must be an orphan. I am in need. This is offensive if you don't think you're in need. Remember, at one point, Jesus said to the Pharisees um, that they were a product of fornication or that, 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 that they couldn't trace their lineage, rather. And they said, we're, we're not a product of fornication. We know who our dad is. They were so insulted that Jesus mentioned that they weren't real children. Because being real children of God requires you to realize that you have no other support. That you, in effect, are an orphan. Let me show you another one because this one's Davidic. And by Davidic, I mean King David. Psalms 89. I don't know. Don't let this scare you. 19 to 37. That's a long way. But my problem was, is I couldn't find a good starting stopping spot that didn't just cut the psalm off. And so I almost read the whole chapter. So just be lucky that we didn't do that. So we start in 19 and I want to show you, this is, this is David talking all the way up to the quote mark. All right. And then it's, then it's God. So King David, then you spoke in a vision to your faithful one and said, so that's You spoke to David, and here's what you said. I have set the crown on one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. There he is. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. So here's a Davidic psalm. This is God anointing David to be king over Israel, 21. My hand shall always remain with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. 24. My faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him and in my name his horn shall be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, quote mark, now it's David talking, God prophesying. You are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. So notice that once David claims God as his father, which is a big stretch because David has an earthly father, and to claim God as father, you've got to be an orphan. So you have to have some form of divorce from what you were to accept who he is. This is why Jesus said, think not that I come to spread peace, I come to spread a sword. The enemy shall be those of your own house. Mother shall turn against daughter, father shall turn against son. What do you mean by that? When you accept me, there'll be a divorce from what you were so that you can become what you need to be. So the moment David then gets rid of all other connections and says, you're my father, you're my God, you're the rock of my salvation, then watch where it goes, 27. Then I'm gonna make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. 
Forever I'm going to keep my steadfast love for him, and my covenant with him will stand firm. I will establish his line forever and his throne as long as the heavens endure. So even if we just stopped here, what you see is the moment that David claims God is his father, he starts to move into the full realization of covenant. He starts to realize, I'm actually God's firstborn. I'm the highest of the kings of the earth. God's going to love me forever, and God's going to keep me in covenant. So what happens when you realize that he's your dad? <laughs> Good things. This is prescient. This is God advertising to Israel what would happen if they ever saw him as a father. So when Jesus comes along and goes, our father who art in heaven, they've already got the, they got the framework. And they go, if we could just get that, if we could get that consciousness in us of what would happen, and then he'll establish his line forever and his throne as long as the heavens endure. Let's read that out, 30. If his children forsake my law, do not walk according to my ordinances. If they violate my statutes and they do not keep my commandments, this is hell, by the way. Look at all the stuff going wrong. Then I will punish their transgression with the rod. I'll punish their iniquity with scourges. But I will not remove him from my steadfast love. I will not be false to my faithfulness. Look at that. They don't even have to get it all right. I'm not asking for perfection out of my kids. David's kids don't get it all right. In fact, oh, I'm going to discipline them. <laughs> I'm going to scourge the problem. But I am not going to get rid of them. I'm not going to remove them from my steadfast love. I'm not going to be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. I will not alter the word that went forth out of my lips. Once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. I hope you're seeing how powerful that this had to be to David. And this had to be to Israel. If you could just comprehend what it means to be his kid. His line shall continue forever. His throne shall endure before me like the sun. It shall be established forever like the moon, an enduring witness in the skies. Say law. Let's say it again. That's kind of like an amen. And you know where this gets fulfilled? In Jesus, son of David, king of Israel, king of kings, Lord of lords. What really jumps out at me is that David can go to his grave with this assurance. Even if my kids are a bunch of jerks, God's going to be faithful to his covenant because I found out he was my father and he takes care of his kids. When Jesus told you you could pray our Father, guess what he was telling you you could do? You get to claim your spot in the family. You get to know that even when you're a jerk, he's your Father. That even when you mess up. And I, listen, I'm not, trying to be, I'm not trying to be negative, but you're going to mess up, man. You know, get over yourself. And who do you think you are? You're going to fail. You're going to fail miserably sometimes. I hope you don't fail so badly that you, you wreck your whole life. But I know that people do. It's also another reason I'm so impressed with Christ. I have watched Christ pick up broken pieces and put people back together and fix stuff. Fix broken homes and broken hearts and broken bodies. He didn't have to do any of it. He did it because he's merciful and he's gracious and he's kind. But I'm not going to lie to people and tell them that this isn't a possible outcome of living in the earth. Of course it is. If you had to fear you were going to lose your inheritance every time you failed, you couldn't be a happy believer. You'd be miserable. The saints of God ought to be full of joy. Even if they're the most persecuted people in the world, they could be full of joy. Because they know that he can't leave them and he can't forsake them. He doesn't cut them out of his will. He doesn't get mad on a whim and just get rid of them because, you know, I've had it with you in your attitude. And I don't think this, it's being negative to admit that sometimes we're just, 
we don't live like we know we're kids. Let's be honest. I mean, why does Paul have to tell them to live like they know they're kids? Because we don't. Let me say it again. Why does Paul need to remind the Ephesian church to live as if they knew they were children? Because we don't live like we know we're children. Sometimes we don't even live like we've ever met him. And yet he chases us. He keeps hunting us down with his love and with his goodness and with his grace. Heaven. Let's talk about heaven. I don't want you to think of heaven as a cosmic place just over in the glory land where there's streets of gold, walls of jasper, and gates of pearl. By the way, streets of gold, walls of jasper, gates of pearl in the Bible are never descriptions of heaven. Um, we just, they made for really good adjectives in Southern gospel songs. <laughs> they are descriptions, allegoric descriptions of the new Jerusalem, a city that comes down from God out of heaven that if you wanna see the allegory make even more sense, God says, is his bride. So he's either married to a city or the city means something more than a city. And in the city are streets of golden walls of jasper and gates of pearl and all kinds of things. Not all of which could even be, were even necessary to be related. Um, first century Judaism into which Jesus speaks the Lord prayer does not have a real well-rounded idea of heaven as a destination in the afterlife not near as well-rounded as, say, 4th century Christianity or medieval Christianity or what we might have in the 21st century of Christianity. Um, we are enamored of it. If some kid falls out of a tree and goes into a coma and wakes up and says he spent, you know, 18 minutes in heaven, that's a guaranteed bestseller because we badly want to know what's over on the other side. It doesn't matter if the kid renounces it later or says they saw a bunch of other stuff that's not in the Bible. We'll just go hone in on things that teach us of the afterlife. I'm not, I'm not, I know it sounds like I'm being, I am being a smart aleck, but I, it sounds like I'm being hateful. And I really am not. The reality is, is I believe that when we pass from this body, we got to go into the presence of the Lord because our spirit's eternal. And if he's eternal and we're eternal, then we go wherever he is. And wherever he is, I'm happy with. I don't care what it looks like, what it smells like, what it act, what, who's there. I don't care if every sinner that ever lived gets in. Amen. Yeah. And that throws some people off if you ever say anything like that. But I'm amazed at how many Christians get mad at the thought that somebody got in that they didn't think should get in. I don't care if I get there in the whole wide world gets to make it in. Praise God, as long as I'm in the presence of the Lord. I do believe, absent from this body, I'm in His presence. Yeah. I can face death with that assurance. What's heaven in their context? Not a place with streets of gold walls and jasper gates of pearl. They were not thinking about it as a destination when they die. If you want to prove me wrong, go find the transcript of when they interviewed Lazarus after he was resurrected and asked him what heaven looked like. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. No one bothered. There's not a single verse where they go, hey, Lazarus, what was heaven like? In fact, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know why I'm on this. I just want to get this out of my system. I was thinking about the Lazarus resurrection the other day, and I thought if we got in a time machine and went back there and watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, our nature would be to talk to Lazarus more than Jesus. That ought to tell you something about our soteriology, about our salvation story. We would be far more intrigued with what Lazarus saw than with hanging out with Jesus. All right, that's my soapbox. 
for what it's worth, and it ain't worth much. <laughs> um, heaven, in their context, had less to do with the destination and more to do with this realm of God, what I like to call the, the unseen or the invisible. If you asked Jew in that century the location of heaven, what their Genesis story told them was that heaven was the space between what's up there and what's here. All of that is the space of heaven. But the place where God resides in the heavens is not over on some far planet. But they saw the place that God resides as the temple. It's why they would lay their lives down for it. Because the place where God set his foot on the earth was the temple. And where God actually sat his backside to a Jew was the seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's why they called it the mercy seat. It's also why they covered it in blood with the spotless goat every year on the Day of Atonement because they were atoning for the sins of the people. That was the place that God dwelled. By the time Jesus come, he once walks past the temple and he says to the Pharisees, tear this place down in three days I will rebuild it. And it says he was speaking of the temple of his body. Later in his ministry at the end of Matthew 23, Jesus says this temple has been left unto you desolate. The reason why Jesus says that is because he believed he was the replacement to the temple. Jesus is the footprint of God on the earth. No longer is it the Ark of the Covenant. No longer is it the temple in Jerusalem. No longer is it a place made of concrete, marble, and stone. The temple is Jesus. This is why Paul's theology of Christ in you, the hope of glory, was so revolutionary. Because, now hear me on this. Take all that and put it together. It took heaven and moved it into you. Okay? But to a first century Jewish mind hearing the Lord's Prayer, where's heaven? Not a place over in the glory land, but the place that God dwells. And therefore, heaven is the place above me. Not just physically, but intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. It's up. My hell, we don't have any problem with hell being down. Go through hell. Are you up or down? down. That's a no-brainer. So they saw heaven as being up, that which is up. And that which is up isn't easy to get to. The Old Testament saw it as a ladder that you climbed that was incapable of being climbed and that you would do all that you could to get up, but that you could not. And then Christ would have to come down to us. They saw it this way in Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. So my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Therefore, when Jesus said, our Father who art in heaven, he was putting the Father above your ways. It's a father who loves you as a son, who loves the collective as his family, but he's unlike anything you know. He's above you. He's beyond you. When you pray, you're praying up. I don't just mean geographically. I mean in every possible sense. This is bigger than me. It's higher than me. And why is that important? The discovery of your father in heaven is to find a higher authority than yourself. This moves you forward. This moves you upward, which is greater for you and the world than it would be for you to be motionless and selfish because that's the alternative. If it's not our Father in heaven, then it's just here. It's not up, then it's just you. There's nothing left above you. 
Above you forces you upward. Above you puts you in motion. And if you have nothing to bow to, and this is hell right here. If we have nothing to bow to, you become the center of the universe. The Lord's Prayer opens with the acknowledgement that we are not the center, that we are not alone, and that we have something greater to aspire to. I am not alone. It's an hour. I am not the center. It is my Father. I have something greater to aspire to. He's in the realm of the invisible, influencing the visible. The great danger of atheism is not that people don't believe in your God. The great danger of atheism is that once they don't believe in a God, they are the only God left to believe in. Atheism is no threat to the church. Come on, the gates of hell do not prevail against Christ. Atheism is a great threat to the atheist. And what happens then is that the atheist becomes a great threat to everyone else for whom they have no higher calling. Our Father who art in heaven makes us responsible to each other because we are not the center of our universe. He is. And if he is the center, then he might be your father too. And I ought to take you as serious as I take me. Hallowed be thy name. We end here. To hallow is to set apart, to keep and to treat as holy. Which leads me to one thought. Consider what it means to take this name in vain. Okay? I tend to think that we only think of people putting damn after God's name as taking God's name in vain or saying Jesus Christ when they stub their toe in the dark as taking God's name in vain. I don't like either of those. I don't do those. But I don't think that's taking God's name in vain. Oh, it's, it is. But it isn't what's in the purview of God when we take His name in vain. Taking God's name in vain is thus saith the Lord and then anything that doesn't look like Jesus coming after it. It happens in church every week. More of God's name is taken in vain in pulpits than was ever taken stubbing toes at 3 o'clock in the morning. For every R-rated movie that you turn off because they take the Lord's name in vain, I would say it happened four or five times more at the local church within the last week alone. God was attached to all kinds of foolishness. God was attached to violence. God was attached to war. God was attached to retributive murder. God was attached to governments and politics. God was attached to ideologies. The cross was wrapped in flags and skin color and sexual preferences and genders and thought processes. And we wrapped the cross up in whatever it took to get people to agree with our version of God. And somehow we think that saying Jesus Christ out of context is the super offensive way to hurt the heart of God by using His name in vain. It's hallowed. It ought to stay that way. When you open your mouth about God, He should be a father. He should be inclusive. He should be in heaven. No, I don't mean he's not on the earth, but he should be above it all. Yeah. He's a step up. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. You know the context of that in Isaiah 55? The context of that is that you wouldn't be merciful. You wouldn't be gracious, Isaiah said. But my ways are not your ways, 
and my thoughts are not your thoughts. In other words, I'll be more gracious than you. I'll be more merciful than you. I'll be more forgiving than you. I'm above you. You will be co-opted by the realm of the natural. It's because you're of the earth. You just can't help yourselves. But the weapons of your warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They're invisible. They're from a higher dimension. So lead people into that dimension. Lead them there through your prayer. Lead them there through your worship. Lead them there through your, your sermon. And lead them there through your life. It's not about floating on the clouds above the populace so that you're untouchable. It's about presenting a God that is greater than the world has ever seen, who loves them unconditionally. World, or a love from another dimension. A love that, as we told you when we were in 1 John, what manner of love is this? Remember what that meant in the Greek? What planet is this love from? <laughs> what out of this world love is this that God would love us so much? And then rest it all in Jesus. Just, just take it all, push it into Jesus, and push Jesus in front of people. And quit sharing the platform with him. Just get him out there, and you get way back there, maybe even back there. <laughs> Maybe even out there in your car and leave. Just get Jesus up there to where it's Christ. Why? Because He has become the hallowed name. Here's how Paul said it. We, we end here. Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and given Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth, in the invisible and the visible, and even under the earth, in both heaven and earth and hell, that every knee would bow. Let me say it again. In both the heavens and the earth and hell, that every knee would bow. Thank God. And every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Hey, Paul, how's this whole thing going to go down? I don't know. But I'm confident in that. Jesus' name is above all names and everything in both dimensions and Whatever is above you and whatever is below you, they're going to bow and recognize the name of Jesus. The difference is not that we don't all believe that. The difference is how we think it's going to happen. That's for another sermon. <laughs> I, think, I, I think there's a really good chance that the God of love knows how to love you in. At least that's what the cross teaches me. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Pray that this week, at least that first sentence. Got a little more ammo than you had before. Next week we move a little deeper. Let's pray. Father, our Father, who art in heaven, thank you for this word tonight. For the excitement of unveiling Jesus. I pray that, Father, we have made you look good as we've highlighted your son. So many times I get to the end of these lessons, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to say it. So I'll just stop and say, thank you. Do the work in Jesus' name. Amen.